Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day as we wrap up this week. Here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Some infrastructure issues, Um, certainly the situation down around New Orleans with the the flooding and the storm, uh, big concern there. And uh, also, uh, we have some news about some efforts to try to do some uh, work down in that part of the water system that is so critical for moving products up and down the river. We're going to talk about all that with Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition. Also, lots of uh, market things to talk about. We've got numbers from yesterday's WASD report uh, to go over. We'll do that with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. And then we're going to talk with University of Illinois farm broadcaster Todd Gleason. He has taken his own kind of unofficial crop tour, and he's covered a lot of miles in different states. And we're going to get a report from Todd on on the crop conditions that he uh, saw while uh, making that uh, little journey through several states. He saw some interesting things, uh, good and bad, and uh, we'll find out coming up a little bit later with that crop report. But right now we're going to start things off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Well, I suppose I'm relieved because it's Friday and the Senate has left town and the House is about to leave. So it's sort of like a a three-day weekend starts today. (laughs) You know, really, when you look at it, uh, there's not much time left this summer for them to do anything, right? I mean, they'll soon be going on their August recess. No, there isn't a lot of time, and they need to do a budget deal so the government doesn't shut down. Uh, on September 30th, and yesterday House Speaker Pelosi announced that she wants to do a deal with with Trump on the budget and also the debt ceiling, so we'll see if that, if that happens. Now, it does seem that there is, is slow progress on the USMCA, uh, you know, U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, trade agreement, uh, uh, you know, getting ready for, to, be, uh, to be considered in Congress. But it's slow. Now they're saying September, not August, not before the uh, August when they'll be gone for a month. All of a sudden, Nancy Pelosi has more challenges perhaps within her own party than she does with, with President Trump. Yes, she does. And it's a very odd thing because the people challenging her in her party are a group of uh, leftist women uh, whose main ability to gain power is through the Internet, through social media. Uh, as she has said, there's only three or four votes there, uh, but they get the attention of the public, uh, and so you know, then that makes it difficult uh, for her. Uh, however, uh, she is a wily uh, uh, leader, uh, and at this point I would still pre- uh, expect her to prevail on serious issues. Meanwhile, interesting uh, meeting yesterday, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, and this turned into a a, a big promotion for those uh, that are speaking out in favor of and pushing plant-based foods, and they they had quite a contingent there. And in fact, they even went so far 
as to uh, urge the committee to drop dairy as a food group. I'm, and we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, I'm sure. But uh, we're going to, I think, hear more from these plant-based folks, aren't we? Oh, yes, we will hear more from the, plant, from the plant-based folks. Uh, although I think the most important part of this is how the consumers act. Uh, we have these battles every five years over the dietary guidelines um, and so it's exactly as you heard yesterday they showed up they talked they made a big noise and I but I think the most important thing that they do is that they get their message out to the public that they believe that a plant heavily plant-based diet is healthier than, than the consumption of a lot of animal protein whether it's from, through dairy or through uh, or through meat and through the publicity, they seem to be having a lot of, of uh, impact on the consumers because plant-based products are increasing. Uh, it's a little hard to say with dairy because it's a, it's a mix. Uh, people drink less fluid milk than they used to, although it's still a big uh, uh, food group. Uh, uh, so it's really the way that they use the dietary guidelines to get publicity to get to the consumer, that's the important part here. Yeah, they went after both uh, the dairy industry and, of course, the livestock industry, the meat uh, meat sector. Uh, they're trying to get the more of a share of that uh, of the of the plate, if you will, for plant-based foods and uh, taking away from some of these others. So we're going to be hearing there'll be some pushback. We're going to talk with the dairy folks in the days to come and the and the beef and pork people as well. But uh, you're right. Every time these guidelines come up uh, for renewal and review, we go through these battles. Yes, I do think that consumer pressure is the biggest single issue in agriculture today, the change in consumption habits. And I find it very difficult for agriculture to deal with this because it's so remote from the farm. It's a long ways from the farm to that grocery store aisle. But ultimately, uh, that is what, you know, it's the consumer pressure that will determine uh, what the food company don't care what they're selling as long as they're selling something that people want. And I think that's very difficult for farmers to deal with. Yeah, I think a lot of times uh, we in agriculture we tend to think, well, what differences make those guidelines? People eat what they want to eat. But those guidelines do have some impact when decisions are made. And as you said, uh, the publicity that gets raised around them, that gets uh, people in the food industry their attention, and it can influence uh, what uh, what winds up in those grocery store shelves. Yes, oddly enough, the American people don't follow the dietary guidelines. They, you know, they eat too much of things that people say they shouldn't eat or that specialists say they shouldn't eat. However, they do have one really big impact, and that is on any federal nutrition program, school meals or, or uh, food for the elderly, whatever, the, the nutri- federal nutrition programs are supposed to follow the dietary guidelines. So if there are changes in them, that can affect what the government buys and ultimately consumer of food products in the United States. And of course, of that, the biggest category is the food that is served to the military. So they do have some impact. They just don't have the direct impact with the American public that the writers uh, of the dietary guidelines wish they would. Yeah, good points. Jerry, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll see you next week, maybe.
All right. Enjoy the weekend. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Jerry Hagstrom report. So, yeah, we're going to get more reaction to uh, to all that about the dietary guidelines and the, the plant-based uh, advocates pushing against dairy and, and red meat. We'll be talking about that coming up next week. But now we're going to take a break, and when we come back, talk about infrastructure, the situation down in New Orleans, uh, some uh, uh, money from the United Soybean Board going to help uh, with some uh, – improvements on the river system that are much needed. We're going to talk about all that with the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, Mike Steenhook, as we talk infrastructure next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. 
Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the weather hits in 2019 just keep on coming. Now there's a tropical storm, Barry, causing lots of problems. Certainly uh, the folks in that uh, Mississippi Gulf region very much in our thoughts and prayers. Let's talk about it with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for being with us. Uh, what is the impact, potential impact on agriculture of a tropical storm, Barry? Well, you know, all these key soybean and corn production states that are located next to the Ohio River or the Mississippi River or Illinois River or Arkansas River, all of that, so much of that production gets loaded onto a barge and then directed down to export terminals near New Orleans along the Mississippi River. So as a result, that whole region of the country accounts for 60% of U.S. soybean exports, 59% of corn exports, the largest export region for both commodities. So when you have a weather event like this or any kind of disruption of operations in this key part of the country, it's not just a Louisiana thing. It's a, it's an Illinois thing. It's an Iowa thing. It's a Missouri thing, an Ohio thing. So uh, clearly it's something that merits our attention. Yeah, everything gets backed up, right? One cog in the, uh, in the chain, one le- uh, link that's having a problem, that backs everything up. And it, it really has tangible impact on farmers because, you know, we've seen before Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was a, a real vivid example where all of a sudden you had a disruption of service with these export terminals down in that vicinity, and all of a sudden farmers in the Midwest saw that, wow, my basis has really widened. Is it because demand's changed? No. Is it because my beans are not as of high quality as they normally are? No. Just simply because the, the supply chain isn't working. And so all of a sudden... The response to that is farmers get paid less for the for what they grow. That basis gets widened. So it really has an impact on individual farmer profitability in the middle of the country. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, uh, soybean farmers are making an investment to try to uh, make improvements on that uh, waterway system. Tell us about it. Well, in, during this really kind of period of anxiety that that soybean farmers are really experiencing, the temptation can be to be passive in your investments and in your effort to try to promote the industry, to pull back. Well, soybean farmers have actually leaned in, and they've decided to be more aggressive. The United Soybean Board recently committed a million dollars to help underwrite the the lower Mississippi River, again, that area that accounts for 60% of soybean exports by helping to deepen the lower Mississippi River from 45 feet to 50 feet. And in doing that, you're able to attract larger ships that can get loaded at those export terminals. You can load the current ships that currently service those that area with more soybeans. What that does is it just makes us more competitive. It lowers the transportation cost that can enhance our competitiveness. And so we're, we're, soybean farmers are looking for any opportunity to enhance our competitiveness in the international marketplace, particularly during this difficult time. And so the soybean farmers really need to be commended for, for really being aggressive and intentional with their investments. 
yeah, two million dollars from the United Soybean Board. Um, but that's a big project. Uh, there's, where's the rest of the money going to come from? You know, the, the the two other sources of funding are the the federal government. They're responsible for seventy five percent of the cost, and the state of Louisiana responsible for twenty five percent of the the total cost. And what this project really is positioned to do is provide a really good example of federal government, state government, a private entity, soybean farmers all working together to actually get something done. And we talk a lot about public-private partnerships. A lot of the people don't really understand what that means, but this is an example that of a public-private partnership that is allowed to proceed can really um, make a difference for agriculture and a, and a host of other industries. And the federal government right now, they're trying. The question is whether or not they will come up with a very seismic, comprehensive infrastructure strategy. That's becoming less and less likely. But what the federal government can do, yet this year, if they really have the fortitude to do it, is move this project forward to secure their federal portion of the money. The state of Louisiana has come up with their portion of the money. So what remains is the federal government coming up with their allocation. And if that happens, we can actually move forward on this project yet in 2019. So they have an opportunity to really demonstrate to the American people that they may not be able to get something comprehensive done this year, but they can do something tangible that would have a real impact on our country. There's more talk about infrastructure again, a timeline maybe. It's it's uh, it it really is a a concern that you know there's that there's a lot of disagreement right now on on a host of issues that really are unrelated to infrastructure. It's whether or not Congress, the House, and the Senate can come up with some kind of agreement on funding allocations for a host of issues this year. The worry is these projects that are really important that you can get some agreement. They end up getting overwhelmed by some of these larger political acrimony that can really permeate Washington, D.C. So the responsibility is for farmers and for other groups that are would benefit from this project to really insist upon moving this project forward. And the message is, look, we're not going to solve all the world's problems this year, but you know what? We can actually move forward on a specific project that would provide specific benefit to farmers and a host of other industries. The lower Mississippi River is the largest port complex in the United States in terms of volume of freight that is moved. In addition to agriculture, a lot of petroleum products, chemical products, a lot of other aggregate material moves in and out of that that region. So it's not just agriculture that would benefit. It's a host of other industries as well. So we really need to make sure that we're focused on this and really insisting on moving forward. Soybean farmers have come up to the plate. It's not only their time and energy, but also their resources. And it's time for the federal government to follow suit. Tell us a little bit more about this dredging project. Uh, how significant is it as far as what it would it's going to take, uh, what it will entail, and then the difference that will make uh, for our transportation system? Well, that, that region, that 256-mile region of the Mississippi River, a lot of it is naturally deep. It's deeper than 50 feet, but like with a lot of rivers, there's little points where you can have sediment build up. And so that's the re- it's identifying those areas and then making sure that you're going, going to that 50-foot uh, depth. And that would just make that region just all the more competitive in the ability of moving freight, including agricultural freight. And given the fact that 
interior basis, the, far, the price that a farmer receives at the point of sale is so much a function of how efficient the transportation system is after the delivery. So how efficient barge to ocean transportation is really has an impact on how on the price that farmers receive, particularly if you're located near one of those rivers. So we think that soybean farmers would receive annually $461 million in additional revenue not because demand has changed, not because supply has changed, but just simply because the transportation system is more efficient and cost-effective due to dredging that lower Mississippi River. So this is just a, this is an opportunity for farmers to have more money in their wallets, and we need to explore and pursue any opportunity to do that, particularly during this challenging time that we find ourselves in. So there's dredging. There's also relocation, some pipelines involved in that as well? Yeah, there's... You know, because there's all these pipelines that have been buried underneath uh, the Mississippi River, part of the exercise is identifying to what extent do those pipelines need to be relocated as you're taking that river deeper. Um, that's that's more of the subsequent actions that need to hap- occur. The kind of the first step is there's a little area kind of near the Gulf of Mexico that needs to be deepened, and then that would open up about 150 miles of that river to that 50 foot in in depth. So that would be kind of the first uh, step. Uh, the, the, the soybean, the $2 million of United Soybean Board funding would really help to, to help start that initial step. So there's kind of the deepening part of it, and there's certainly that pipeline relocation that's going to be later in the project. But kind of the real key is getting the project started. Once you kind of get the project started, it can really start building momentum. So a lot of energy is going to be focused on getting the federal government off the dime that it's currently on and getting moving. Uh, the, to, to get it started would require about $21 million from the federal government, $7.5 million from the state of Louisiana, and then this $2 million from the United Soybean Board would really help get this project started. And so that's, you know, that's a lot of money for you and me, but from the federal government, that's that's really kind of a rounding error. But yet, it would be a real consequence to the soybean industry, agriculture, and a host of other industries. Very good. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the news, and uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, positive developments on this. As soybean farmers have stepped up, we hope the government will, too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We'll talk markets next with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, there was a study released recently comparing organic milk with conventional milk, and the study says and claims that uh, the non-organic milk tested positive for pesticides, illegal antibiotics, and growth hormones. When I get reaction to that from the dairy industry, joining us now is the Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, Clay Detlefson. Clay, thank you for joining us. Uh, what do you make of this study? At this point, we don't buy it. We don't believe that the results that have been provided are accurate. They fly in the face of government test results that have been going on for years and years and years, and it's just very unusual that these results could be valid. So we're questioning the methodology and the proficiency 
of the folks that uh, perform the testing. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. December corn bulls were in charge yesterday with a hefty rally. The action carving out new chart support at 430 and a quarter on the December contract. Yesterday's WASD report showed corn acreage production and stockpiles all rising. Some traders taking the numbers with a grain of salt. USDA says that an export sale of 104,100 metric tons of corn to Panama will be taking place for delivery in the 2019-2020 marketing year. Weather forecast for the western Midwest, dry conditions, just a few light showers on Friday. Dry weather Friday for the eastern Midwest. Tropical Storm Barry looks to cause more flooding in areas off the Mississippi River. It's likely to cause disruptions in river traffic that will back up into the Midwest and beyond. An hour into this trading day on Friday, December corn up six and a quarter at four fifty-four and a quarter. November soybeans up four and a half at nine twenty-one and three quarters. The wheat futures have been mixed. Minneapolis September up a fraction at five forty-one and three quarters. Chicago wheat September at five nineteen down two and a half, trimming back some of yesterday's sharp rally. Kansas City wheat September penny and a quarter higher at four sixty-three. Livestock at American Live Cattle Futures, the August contract, 40 cents higher at 108.27. We await cash cattle activity in the Central and Southern Plains for the week. Bids at 109 in Kansas on this Friday. Asking prices said to be at 113. Feeder cattle, August contract down $1.12 at 141.55. August lean hogs, $1.25 higher, 80.42. The Dow is up. 136 points, S&P up 4, August crude oil in New York, up 19 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we need to go over the WASD numbers from yesterday. The report, uh, some had already discounted some of it. Uh, others looking for different parts of it. Uh, let's uh, get the thoughts from uh, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thanks for being with us. What was the big takeaway? The corn stocks number? 
Uh, I think the big takeaway was the fact that there were no real surprises. Uh, you, I mean, you could say surprises because of the corn stocks number, because that was the trade estimate, but there were no surprises relative to the whisper numbers out there. I think the trade was we had detected in some of our momentum indicators um, that the corn market wanted to go up and uh, just had that sense to it that there were buyers there ready, but they were just afraid of what USDA may do. They knew that USDA would probably use, <clears throat> excuse me, the acreage numbers from June 28th and might not adjust the yield down, and that would give us higher stocks. Um, but they wanted to make sure USDA didn't do anything else that might make it even more bearish than that. They didn't, and the algos traded the program numbers, and then the humans came in and bought the market. Now, you were saying that the best uh, indicator of, of where we're going here was more how the markets would close yesterday, not how they reacted right after the report. So uh, where, where do we stand now? Yeah, exactly right. And uh, as I was indicating, the algos, the computer traders, you know, traded those published estimates versus what actually came out from USDA. But then after doing that, we backed down and got really what human sentiment is. Is this market worried about a short crop or is it convinced that USDA is right? And basically it showed that it's worried about a short crop. And I think we're getting enough people out of the trade now who have been across the Midwest starting to get an understanding of some of the problems out there and are concerned about what it might be, particularly with the forecast heating up and drying out for a significant portion of the Midwest. So I think that now is the focus. Once we got past this report, uh, with no new curveballs up the sleeve from USDA. The focus is now on those weather forecasts, how well they verify, and what the impact is on the weekly crop progress reports until we can get more objective data out of the August and September crop reports. We may very soon be going from um, uh, talking about too wet to in several places, some key areas, maybe talking too dry all of a sudden. We're already seeing the corn leaves pineappling or curling in, in big, significant portions of the Midwest. There's several reasons for this. Really to understand this year's crop, and I think there's a lot of institutional investors who are still not really bought into this yet because they don't understand the agronomic side of it, is the heavy rains that we had this year really packed the soils tight. And then when farmers got on those soils, when they were really too wet to do so, trying to get the crop planted, that added to the compaction. So compacted soils, very shallow root development, late development of the crop. And canopying of the crop is one of the keys here. In order to maximize yield potential, we want to intercept as close to 100% of the sunlight coming down to hit that field as possible to get that little factory that converts sunshine and nutrients and water into grain, we want to get 100%. That's how you maximize yields, and we're not doing that. I mean, we have some soybeans yet that aren't even 15 to 20% canopied, and we've got a lot of soybeans uh, across the nation that may never canopy this year. And we've even got some corn in significant production areas that's not canopied because it's shorter, and we still have sunshine hitting the ground. And so that allows the soil to heat up faster and to dry out more and to create more stress for the crop. Now, as this rainfall uh, dries up, we may have moisture in the deep profile, 
but the roots can't get to it because of the tight soils. So that sets up a perfect scenario for a flash drought as temperatures warm up and, and rainfall falls off. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. All right, let's do some outlook, Arlen. Uh, where do you see us going now with the corn price? Well, there's still going to be plenty of doubters out there willing to sell the rally. So I think as we look at that December corn market, uh, we're obviously trading the, the, the highest that we've traded now uh, since uh, that uh, June 28th acreage report. Can we take out those highs from that day? Can we move above those levels that we were at back then? I think that's going to be one of the keys. That the, I mean, because technicals are still going to matter a great deal amid the uncertainty. And I think a lot of it's going to be uh, what are the midday forecasts today, and then when we come back on Sunday night, what are the forecast models on Sunday night? Forecasters keep saying that this high-pressure ridge is going to be transitory and in short term, but they keep extending out how far it is. If we come back Sunday night and it continues to do that, then I think we're going to start making more believers out of more of those institutional investors. Soybeans? Soybeans, it's a much tougher job to figure out. Uh, there's one private estimate out there saying we have 89 million acres, and they use satellite data. I personally doubt that seriously. Um, there, there's a possibility we could be as low as 78 million acres. We know there's a lot of farmers who return soybean seed early in areas that were dry enough to plant to plant more corn, and then they ended up having to return corn seed to plant more soybeans, and then some never even got soybeans, had to return both seeds. Um, so there's a lot of questions about what this year's final acreage is going to be and what yield is going to be. Uh, and then we have this big surplus of old crop of over a billion bushels that carry out. So what we need to see here is more evidence that we have acreage down in that 78, 79 area and that we're looking at at least a 10% drop from trend on yield to really start tightening it up. And part of that is because my demand estimate is 300 million bushels sl smaller than what USDA's is for this next year because of the anticipated favorable growing season for South America and the growing season ahead, and because of the demand destruction we're seeing in China. So there's a lot of different variables. So soybeans are largely going to be a follower of corn, I think, in here, and I think we'll gradually see that soybean corn ratio, ratio tighten up some more, but they will follow corn if corn goes higher. Wheat harvest is underway. What do you see this uh, wheat market doing? You know, USDA confirmed yesterday that uh, we have a really good hard red winter wheat crop as far as yield, although the protein is low. Soft red winter wheat crop is not so. Uh, we're having more bomb problems with uh, vomitoxin problems with that crop. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so we've got kind of a mix back there. But the U.S. supplies are ample, but world supplies are tightening up. USDA making significant cuts near 10 million metric tons coming from major production areas of the world in yesterday's report, probably more cuts coming. They actually cut feed usage by about a million metric tons. And the expectation of the market is that once USDA acknowledges the short size of this year's corn crop, they're going to have to dramatically increase feed usage on a global scale as well. And that's going to further tighten up that world balance sheet. We're not going to run out of wheat, 
but it does suggest that wheat can follow corn higher. Yesterday was a lot of short covering. We got that out of the way. Now I think it's a matter of wheat trying to keep itself in the feed bunk, not get ahead of corn, but kind of follow corn higher. So now we uh, kind of wait for that August uh, crop report. Uh, in the meantime, is it, is it safe to call it a weather market now? I would call it a weather market, and part of it's because we really don't have any other type of data with any confidence to focus on, and part of it is because with the lower acreage uh, this and the tight soils, this crop is more vulnerable to weather stress this year. And so I think that's going to be the key factor over the next month. We've spread out pollination this year, so it's not like we have to worry about a one-week period when the whole crop pollinates nationwide. We have spread it out. But at the same time, uh, it does mean that we are encountering stress while a significant portion of the crop is pollinating. And what about the export side? What, how's business looking? We've really fallen off a cliff on corn shipments, so we saw USDA reflect that yesterday. Soybean shipments continuing to lag as well. We've got the most expensive corn and soybeans in the world among the major exporters, uh, and that's creating some problems for us right now. That's part of the rationing process. We don't need that in soybeans. In corn, I think this crop is short enough to justify that that's what we need to see happen. In fact, we'll probably see more reports of corn being imported uh, first in the southeast into the Wilmington area, but I think also probably into other parts of the Midwest as well. I think we're going to start seeing some of our older, less efficient ethanol plants starting to uh, slow down production or shutter their plants. That's part of the rationing process as well, but this crop may be small enough to justify it. Exports are going to be tough for a while while we pull forward some of the demand from other areas. But when you look at world supplies, ex, uh, excluding China, which isn't really involved in the world trade, and excluding the United States to see, okay, how much supply is out there to meet the demand that we can't meet, we're looking at a 37-day supply, which is the tightest that we've been since the first part of this century. Well, it's, uh, well, it's just shaping up to be... Uh you know, just one of the years like we've not seen and how all this plays out. And we keep waiting. Is China going to be buying something like we heard after the G20 summit? We're still waiting on that. Haven't seen much of that either. So a lot of factors here. As always, Arlen, good to good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Well, those crop conditions, they vary uh, state to state, even uh, areas within states, certainly. Todd Gleason from the University of Illinois. He's been out on a crop tour of his own. We'll find out what he has seen. That's coming up next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private health care is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. 
When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. And health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything, editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Pressure on agriculture, on environmental issues, has been growing the last several years and looks to probably intensify in the years to come. Let's talk about that with the CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. Charlie, thank you for being with us. I know it certainly looks like the public at large and maybe some policymakers uh, don't feel that agriculture is doing enough when it comes to reducing uh, its carbon footprint. Now, agriculture has a good story to tell, but disconnect here right now well you're exactly right mike and there are a number of things that are that are at play here kind of simultaneously it's a change in consumer attitudes consumer uh, consumer purchasing behavior the emergence and the growth of the purpose-driven consumer we're also seeing that lack of appreciation and awareness of what actually happens on farms the bias against size and scale of agriculture and a number of other factors for the information important to rural america join us on adams on agriculture I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me 
Your handy chains. Dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as we try to get a handle on this year's crop, it, it's tough. I mean, it's the, the conditions are so variable state to state and even within states. So we're trying to get that handle on how things look. Someone who's been out to trying to get a look at a lot of those crops is Todd Gleason, University of Illinois farm broadcaster. Todd, thanks for being with us. You kind of did your own uh, crop tour, didn't you? Where did you go? Well, I uh, took off um, on Sunday last week, and I made a long run. But I've been from Effingham, which is in southern Illinois, roughly speaking. There's a lot of southern Illinois past that. Uh, all the way through Champaign, uh, the Quad Cities, uh, to Iowa City, uh, where the Hawkeyes are, up to Waterloo, and then straight across Route 20, uh, all the way across Iowa to 29, the interstate, and up to Fargo, North Dakota. So I've uh, seen a whole lot of Illinois. I also have been all the way north to Rockford on 39, so I've seen that as well, and then into parts of western Illinois, and a lot of Iowa, uh, and past millions of acres over the last week, week and a half. So you've seen the variability, you've seen the areas not even planted, kind of give us some of your takeaways for, from your tour. Yeah, so, so there's this, a couple of quick summaries. Uh, I think we should start soybeans rather than corn. Soybeans were just planted late. Um, I don't know what the 50% plant date was, but I'm going to guess about June 15. Uh, and that's for Illinois, Iowa, uh, the Dakotas. Actually, the north or the southeast corner of North Dakota just simply isn't planted. That's the only place I really came across a whole bunch of plant prevent plant acres or just not planted acres. Uh, there's an awful lot of corn south of Champaign that just hasn't been in the ground more than two weeks. Uh, that surprised me from Champaign to Effingham. Uh, up to Rockford, things, I went up there the 19th, I think, of June, uh, and I was surprised then there weren't any soybeans at that point. Uh, uh, how small that crop was, it hadn't been in the ground maybe a uh, week, week and a half, so that June 5 time frame. And then the rest of the way across uh, to Iowa, things got much better, but there's still just an incredible amount of variability in the size of this crop. You're, clearly, there was corn that was planted sometime in April, uh, well above head high. I didn't think tasseling yet, though I have heard there is corn tasseling in the Des Moines area. Uh, and then there was thigh-high corn everywhere as well. So this, this crop actually looks, when you look across it, fairly even. I'm surprised by that, but the vigor seems to have been good. I'm told by farmers that, you know, they're not really happy with the stands, but until you get out and make the counts, it's it's rough to estimate what that looks like. However, it's just so late that, I, you know, I guess you could summarize it as variable and fair uh, is maybe okay. I don't think you could call this crop good or excellent. And the, the weekly crop progress reports, Mike, the 3,800 observers, those 
folks that are out in the county that are looking at this crop, they have to try to figure out how to deal with a crop that doesn't look all that shabby, but is just somewhere between six weeks late. Yeah, and some of those fields that as you drive by might look pretty good, you know there are problems out in those fields, uh, big wet spots, big uh, drowned out areas. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a perennial problem. It'll be greater across the whole of the United States this year. You know, we hear each and every year about this, and mostly I discount that, relatively speaking, because it's normally confined to, uh, I, I won't say small areas, but say, let's say last year. Uh, you would think about uh, that uh, uh, northern Iowa and parts of Minnesota. You can see that in in how wet it was. Uh, and did it have an impact? Well, obviously, yes, but not much of one because we had just really record yields last year. Did you see any what you would call for this year really good crops? And if so, how uh, was that just isolated areas? Or did you see any, uh, you know, more of ex- more more of those areas than you thought you might, or were they just hard to come by? No, so, yeah, so that that was the thing. I frankly thought, because I talked to commodity analysts every day uh, on the radio, that Iowa was doing much better than it actually appears to be doing. Usually what happens is when an area goes just mum, they're quiet. It's because their crops look pretty good, and they don't. there's nothing to complain about, so they don't talk about it. And I hadn't heard about Iowa for a while, and I really thought that that crop would look much better than it does. Uh, you know, the place that I've not been is to the east of Champaign, so I've not been through Indiana and Ohio yet. Uh, I know that the northwestern part of Ohio is simply not planted, or a large part of it uh, is not planted at this point, and northern Indiana still remains just a mess. And I think, actually, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, too, are just really in bad, bad shape. What were your thoughts as you went up through the Dakotas? Uh, so I, I turned, you know, you, I came off 20 onto 29, and you mm-hmm. have those big rolling hills in western Iowa, and then you just turned flat. Um, South Dakota stinks. We know that by the numbers that come out of USDA in those weekly crop progress reports. It clearly is in bad, bad, bad shape. Uh, and I you know, I only ran up the eastern edge of it, but if the rest of it looks anything like that, then that state is in true trouble. And I have not been through very much of North Dakota, just, you know, up to Fargo. Uh, and that north or southeastern corner, as I said, it's actually not planted. Of all the places I went, that's the only place I really saw where suddenly you just they just didn't plant. Um, I did see some six-inch corn in that area. And I can only make an assumption that somebody decided that they needed to continue to plant. Uh, probably were on one of the county, uh, oh, I would think they were on one of the county crop insurance programs. They could have been planting for the RPD, but I doubt that be the case that late. All right, Todd. Well, thanks a lot. I know you've logged a lot of miles. Uh, thanks for sharing some of your uh, your findings with us. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much, Mike, and have a great day. Take care. Good to talk with you, Todd. University of Illinois farm broadcaster Todd Gleason. So that's, you know, the route that he took, that he described, that's what he saw. And, of course, you get very far from that area, and and things can change some more. But uh, the challenges, as we know, are all over, that's for sure. 
University of Illinois Farm Broadcaster Todd Gleason. Thanks, Todd, for being with us, and thanks to all of you for joining us today and for another week. Have a great weekend. Hope you'll be with us Monday on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.